Hello and welcome to Visiting Hours, a Northern Health podcast offering an opportunity to learn a little about the lives, work and dreams of Northern Health staff. My name's Steve and I'll be your concierge behind the curtain. Come on in and join us for Visiting Hours. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay respects to their elders past, present and future embracing their rich tradition of conveying information and ideas through stories and song by sharing our stories with you. Today, we're visiting with a pioneering researcher with a passion for positive patient outcomes, who's equally at home providing care to those who need it most or exercising his green thumbs. Northern Health's Divisional Director of Hospital Without Walls, Professor Don Campbell, welcome. To visiting hours. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. That's my pleasure. Why don't we start by just letting people know what it is you do at Northern Health? Uh, look, my role here at Northern Health is uh, as the medical division director of Hospital Without Walls, essentially the community programs and incorporates uh, our uh, acute to community, post-acute care, hospital in the home, resi in reach and our hospital admission risk program and uh, something that I'm very uh, proud of called Patient Watch. What's what's that about? Patient Watch is a unique service that we've developed. We use an algorithm to detect people who are at highest risk of three or more admissions in the next 12 months and we uh, really provide, offer them a service where there's a two, two layers of worker, a frontline person with no healthcare background and then a health coach who would be allied health or nurse and the job of the um, person at the front line that we call our tele-navigators is to build a relationship with that person and to ask them a set of questions when we check in with them periodically, which could be as infrequently as a month or as frequently as a week or more often. And if they raise a flag from that interaction, it gets escalated to the coach and the coach's job is fix it. But fundamentally, it's about building a relationship of trust with a person who's vulnerable and otherwise at risk of three or more admissions. And our job, in essence, is to see if we can give that person control over their lives and can have good days in their lives. And uh, by doing that, we reduce the frequency of readmission and uh, the number of bed days that a person needs to use in the following 12 months. Wow, what a great initiative. That's, um, that's awesome for the, for the patient outcomes, but also for the hospital as well. It's, that's great. Now, you've been all over the media recently uh, regarding the heparin trials where you're taking something, uh, a spray intranasally to prevent uh, COVID and the uptake of you know, other viruses potentially. Could you tell us a little bit more about the trial itself, what, what's involved and, and who's eligible to, to take part? Thank you. Uh, look, the trial is uh, a trial of an active drug as an intranasal spray compared with a placebo, which is saline, and for a person who's COVID positive and had a rat test, their first their rat test has turned positive in the last 24 to 72 hours, we'll recruit them into the study if they've got another household family member who is as yet uh, COVID negative. And what we want to do is get each member who agrees to be in the study within the household to use the spray three times a day for 10 days and our lovely nurse Madonna will come out and do deliver the medication and uh, do a nasal swab on days one, three, five and ten and we get them to fill in a symptom diary on an app 
what we want to demonstrate is a reduction in transmission of the COVID within the household and a reduction in severity and time to clearance of the virus in the person with the study. The drug we use in the spray is heparin, which is well known to many people because when we use it intravenously, it is a blood thinner. Here we're applying it to the nose. It is not absorbed. It trickles down the back of the throat and it's chewed up by enzymes and therefore not absorbed from the stomach either. It's very safe to do this and uh, we are looking to see whether we can provide proof because if we can, what we think we're opening up is the field of intranasal antiviral therapies, both early treatment and pre- and post-exposure prophylaxis, what we call ET, PEP and PrEP. Early treatment, pre-exposure, post-exposure prophylaxis and... uh, We've got good reason to believe that heparin would also be effective uh, against other viruses, including RSV and uh, influenza. So is that intranasal um, preventative measure uh, like a pioneering idea still? Is that something new? The idea of intranasal drugs is starting to get some traction. In uh, Israel, they're using intranasal nitric oxide. Um, There's a seaweed preparation that people think might work. And uh, there's also some other drugs uh, that are being tried, but people aren't expecting a solution to come via the nose, yet the virus arrives via the nose. Mm. Heparin is the second most widely available and most widely used drug on earth. Uh, It's been in use for 80 years, and uh, we think there's very good reason uh, to use this cheap, widely available preparation, and it's stable at room temperature after opening for at least three months. So there's a lot of good things about it. We need 400 households and uh, actively seeking to recruit. Awesome. So if you think you're eligible and you'd like to be involved in the study, just check out the details in the description of this episode or simply Google intranasal heparin and let's hope there's a positive result. Yes, and look, just to say that um, we're doing this trial in collaboration with people from uh, Murdoch Children's, my um, co-chief investigator, uh, Professor Paul Monigal, uh, with uh, colleagues at the University of Melbourne Pharmacology Department at uh, Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences and colleagues at Doherty, uh, Royal Melbourne, Western, uh, Craig Boltons, who's here with us at Northern, and uh, Barry Dixon, who's an intensivist at uh, St Vincent's, uh, and colleagues at uh, Oxford University. So a broad group, and the funding has been provided uh, via a competitive grant uh, process, uh, but from the Victorian government. Mm. So we're very grateful to the Victorian government for their support. What do you think some of the most important factors are in terms of innovation and, and moving forward? Look, um, in trying to do what we do around health service innovation and how we manage health services, I was attracted to an idea which is not an original one. It's from a guy whose surname's Wardley, but he classified people in three groups and looked at their suitability for certain types of tasks, pioneers, homesteaders and town planners. And in order to deliver care, we really rely on the homesteaders. To make sure we deliver the right sort of care, it's about compliance and checking and the town planners are really important. If you want to get change done, you need pioneers, but you don't get the pioneers to do the tasks that the town planner will do because they'll die of boredom by about lunchtime and uh, it's how you build your teams. And uh, my thoughts around how you build teams is, you know, alignment around purpose Uh, and that you have clear intent and you establish momentum 
and that you're focused on your mission and then that you uh, establish rhythm. So it's clear intent, mission focus and battle rhythm, but you try and choose your people based on their characteristics and uh, the single uniting feature in there is the ability to build and maintain trust. So um, we've got these three types of people, uh, the pioneers, the homesteaders, the town planners, and um, in the business that we're in, in Hospital Without Walls, we're playing within the um, homesteaders and we've been homesteaders for a long time and how we build out the future um, is to throw a few pioneers into the mix and um, that's really about how I think about how we build teams and how we uh, do our innovation. Something that struck me as we've chatted both in the lead up to this interview and as I've researched a little bit as well, is that you are not just bound to the research bench, you're, you're actually um, happy to get out by the bedside and, and embrace the community. And, and I know you're, you're heading up to Alice Springs uh, shortly. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and why, you, why you're doing that? Uh, well, look, I go and work, try to go twice a year for three weeks at a time to work as a general physician in the Alice Springs Hospital uh, and I try to you know, swim between the flags. I don't do anything that I am not competent to do here in Melbourne. I don't do anything fancy that I am not competent, qualified and uh, experienced in and that for me is general internal medicine in a public hospital setting. And uh, I work there with a great team and the working day is very similar. The clientele is very different. Uh, the clientele is many Indigenous people from the local area and local area goes out about 700 kilometres radius. There's the grey nomads uh, who get in the camper van and take off and there's the international tourists who get off the plane and insist on going for a walk with no water in 40 degrees and uh, keel over. What we deal with is uh, very varied, but uh, the quality of care is fantastic and uh, the um, team are very good. The reason I chose to go and work in Alice Springs was one day I was doing my ironing and I was watching the footy and not paying attention to anything and I saw, and it was the Sydney Swans, and I saw the look on Adam Goods's face when uh, a young person in the uh, crowd called him a monkey. And I turned to my wife and said, I get it. I get, I get from the look on that guy's face how much that young person in the crowd has hurt him. And she said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I don't know, I'll think of something. And uh, one thing led to another and uh, I went to Alice Springs and did what I do. The really curious thing is that one time when I was coming back, I was walking along the concourse at uh, Tullamarine and I looked up and I could see in the distance somebody walking towards me. And I thought, gee whiz, I reckon that's Adam Goods. I said to him, look, um, hello. I said, you, you don't know me from, from Adam. Oh, I, said, oh, gee. I said, you don't know me from Adam. Um, <laughs> I said, uh, can I talk to you for two minutes? Because of you, I get it. And I've gone to work in Alice Springs because I want to try and understand a bit better and try and help. And I said, you're my hero. Uh, and I've never said that to anybody in my life. Uh, you can see by the look on my face, I was uh, very emotional about it. We're chatting today with Professor Don Campbell, Northern Health's Divisional Director of Hospital Without Walls. So what was life like for you growing up? Did you always know you wanted to be involved in medicine? What, what was your journey like? Um, look, it was interesting. Uh, I have a brother and a sister and we grew up in a household with mum and dad. Uh, we 
knew their love, uh, there wasn't a heck of a lot of money. My father was very keen for us to have a good education and uh, I couldn't work out how the hell we were going to be able to pay for it. And uh, so I had a paper round and I put my money towards my school fees and I uh, thought, yeah, that's nailed the first semester. How are we going to get the rest? Anyway, there was a scholarship and I went for a scholarship and I only got a half and I thought, oh, gee, I need the other half. So I got in the choir and picked up the other half and I thought, okay, now I've just got to get into medicine because I wanted to be a doctor. I don't really know why I wanted to be a doctor. I formed the view that um, you wanted to do something to help people and uh, got into medical school uh, very luckily and I lived in a suburb where there were a lot of researchers and I thought I wanted to do some research but I felt guilty about it, thought I should be doing helping people directly, not uh, doing research. So I tried to do a bit of both and uh, I liked respiratory medicine, I think because I'd done some stupid experiment to see whether you could get oxygen in through the plastic bag with water in it, with goldfish in it. And so I was interested in respiration <laughs> and breathing. Okay. So <laughs> strange how these things turn out. <laughs> Just keep swimming. Uh, what do you do to, to de-stress? How do, you, how do you get away from uh, the, the pressures of work and research and medicine? Um, I used to not be a kayaker, but my kids took it up and my wife took it up and the house was a bit empty, so I took it up. And uh, my wife and I said, the kids had done this thing called the Murray Marathon kayaking, and uh, one of them at that stage, and uh, my wife said she's going to have a go, and I thought, I'll blow this, I'll have a crack. And so we've done 17 Murray Marathons uh, over the journey, and... uh, I go out kayaking, sometimes have important business meetings with our chief financial officer, uh, Basil Island, uh, kayaking, so we've become good friends over that. If things don't quite go your way, do you ever feel the need to splash him in the face or is it a little more friendly out on the water? Uh, it's very friendly. We did try to go in a double kayak uh, together once and I think we made it about 10 metres and we both fell in the Yarra. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> So that's good. And the other interest that I've uh, seemed to have acquired in the COVID is um, gardening and uh, growing some trees. Oh, okay. We've got a block of place with a block of land and uh, I thought to myself during the lockdown, oh, how am I going to get through this? And I thought, oh, my mother would was a very keen gardener and I thought, well, good enough for mum, good enough for me, I'll have a crack at that. And I thought, gee, this is a bit of fun and uh, got absorbed in it. And uh, so my kids think I'm a prepper. Um into the, got some fruit, got a bunch of fruit trees and a big veggie patch and uh, then I got into permaculture and uh, so I've started planting a whole bunch of trees. So that's been uh, oh, wow. good fun. And for every sequoia you plant uh, over the lifetime, that should account for the um, CO2 production for each of your children. So hopefully uh, I've planted about 16 sequoias so far, got another six to go and we'll see how that goes. Um whether that's useful, but I've in, I really enjoy um, getting out in the garden. Something that's come up uh, time and time again as I've chatted with you over the last week or so and and even in the chat today uh, is your wife and how she often uh, helps confirm uh, ideas that you've had or bring them into action. You'll you'll have a bit of a, a seed of an idea and she'll be like, well, what are you going to do about it? That's her prompt. She's almost like a catalyst uh, for you. What's what's it like having somebody like that in your in your corner? Oh, thank you for the question. Uh, I've known my wife now for 51 years 
Uh, we've been married for 38 and people say, well, what happened in the 13 years in between? To which my wife replies, I was waiting for him to grow up um, and I'm still waiting. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, I think it's incredible, incredibly important to have someone that you can rely on and uh, have as your best friend uh, as you go through life's journey. And if you manage to get that right the first time, you're very fortunate because uh, there's a lot of heartache uh, involved in um, marriages that break down or partnerships that uh, don't, don't, don't work out. So that's been a fantastic thing in my life. And uh, my wife's a very practical person and... Uh, limited in her responses and uh, on a couple of occasions when I had what I thought was a brilliant idea, she said, hmm, what are you going to do about it? And uh, that was the case with our uh, intranasal heparin idea. Um, so, yeah, it's been um, a very important uh, part of my life. I grew up in a household where um, the overt display of affection was never a big feature and I can't say that I'm overtly... Uh, an affectionate person, um, but uh, I'm very grateful to have that relationship and the support that I get uh, from her and hopefully mm. I provide some support. There's some reciprocity in the arrangement as well. <laughs> Absolutely, and I know I could not function without the support of my wife and and, and family. Um, you mentioned your kids before and, and going out, uh, <laughs> roping you into to kayaking. Uh, what's, the, what's the best gift that they've ever given you? <laughs> Wow, the best gift that my children have given me. Uh, I think uh, I've learned a lot from them. Uh, I've received a lot of love uh, from them. As a, I'm glad I prefaced it by saying overt displays of affection are not a uh, characteristic of my interactions mm. uh, with them or with anybody. Uh, I could tell you a story. Uh, there was a period in my life where I worked way too hard sort of up around the 80 hours a week and more. And uh, I came home on a public holiday and no one was home. And uh, I noticed that my clothes were on the couch. And when I looked more closely, I noticed that it was my clothes arranged in a particular way, uh, stuffed with pillows. And I worked out that this was a figure of me. And when, I came, when the family came home, I pointed to this arrangement of the clothes on the sofa and... Uh, asked what that was about and my middle son said to me, that's you. This is a family day and that's you. You're not here. Um, so um, blunt feedback uh, and uh, reality checking, I think, has been a very important part of life. And um, if I think the strange thing in the modern era is uh, communication. And uh, when I left home, I left home. Uh, didn't go back and didn't talk to anybody. Did I write? Did I go home? No. Um, I'm in constant communication with my children uh, via WhatsApp and uh, I can't help reflecting on um, the difference uh, that modern communication makes. Social media is a good thing. Social media uh, has incredible potential for uh, bad things to happen, uh, but this is a good thing. Mm. Thank you so much for, for sharing so openly, I that wasn't the answer I was expecting, um, but I'm so glad that you shared. Um, if you could travel back in time and meet any historical figure, who would you like to have a have a chat with yourself? Well, thanks, um, Steve. If I was travelling back in time and could go back a really long way, I'd probably want to walk and talk with Aristotle. 
And that would be really interesting because Aristotle, I think, uh, is about art, science and design. And I've got very interested in design in particular in recent years. And I think it would be fabulous because everything that we do, including his sort of ethical framework, really links back then. I thought now, I don't speak Greek, so it's going to be a problem. Uh, I don't even speak modern Greek. I don't speak ancient Greek. So I thought, who else? There's a strange character in more recent history that no one will ever have heard of who was the Secretary of State and Chief Advisor to Queen Elizabeth I for 40 years. And his name's William Cecil. He became Lord Burley. He was very influential as to who ascended the throne after Elizabeth and spent a lot of time on this, including possibly the most dastardly deed imaginable because Elizabeth had a cousin known as Mary, Queen of Scots, and she was the rightful heir to the throne. Elizabeth never met Mary and uh, Mary was on her way to meet Elizabeth. Mary wasn't much of a tactician. And anyway, she was nabbed by the English and put under house arrest. And Burley convinced Elizabeth to sign the death warrant for Mary, Queen of Scots, mm. on the promise that he wouldn't use it. So he turned around and killed her. <laughs> Stranger than fiction. <laughs> so he'd be an interesting guy to talk to. And speaking of interesting guys to talk to, it's been an absolute roller coaster of a, a ride with you today, Don. You've got that kind of head down, tail up, pioneering spirit that's integral for research. The compassion that you show for the community, not just Northern Healths, but into Outback Australia as well, is commendable. Despite you saying you don't display affection overtly, you've been incredibly candid with us today and anyone can see that you love your family. You're having meetings on the Yarra, you're planting trees to save the planet, all with a wink and a smile. I could chat to you forever, uh, but sadly, visiting hours are over. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity to meet with you and uh, share with you in the Visiting Hours Northern Health podcast. You're more than welcome. Thank you. We've been visiting today with Professor Don Campbell. And remember, if you think you're eligible and you'd like to be involved in the INHERIT trial, check out all the details in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for joining us today. Look forward to catching you next time during Visiting Hours.